Hello and welcome to a very special lock-in episode of the Creighton Crowbar. It is uh, late May when we're, 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 uh, we're recording this. I should know the day. It's uh, the Sunday the 22nd of May. We're going for a long walk today. I'm kind of tired, but in a nice way. Uh, <laughs> and I'm Alex. And tonight I'm joined by Jamie. Hello. And Graham. Hello. Hello. Uh, Jamie, tell us about what we're going to be talking about tonight. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of traditional roguelikes, um, which we'll, I think we'll go on to define in a moment a little bit clearer for our purposes here. But I think, you know, I've been fascinated by them for quite a few years now, and I play a bunch of them. Um, but one of the things about me, and I'm speaking entirely for myself here, is that I am a fucking idiot, right? And I, <laughs> I'm not good at these games. I've never been good at them. I'm not sure I've ever completed any of the examples we're going to talk about in in any particularly significant ways. They're often really hard. They're often really obscure. The people who are successful at them often play them at the exclusion of every other kind of kind of game, you know, or devote themselves for decades <laughs> to uh, trying to do this. Um, but I think despite that, I think about them a lot. I play them a fair bit and I, I really enjoy them and I find them to be kind of really sort of fulfilling experiences, even when I'm sort of not having them or I'm having them by proxy or uh, I'm reading about them or something like that, um, and also playing them. And so I thought, you know, if, if that chimed with what, how you guys experience these games, then it might be fun to kind of talk around that a little bit and, and chat about, you know, being shit at traditional roguelikes rather than like being <laughs> leet, um, you know, edgelord uh, dungeon masters <laughs> uh, than you know would of, you would often find talking about this stuff i was really pleased when you came up with the concept of this so you know a little behind the scenes kind of uh, in uh, context for this we uh, the three of us decided we, we wanted to do something about roguelikes because we all share a fascination for them uh, but none of us had owned up to the fact that we're all shit at them, <laughs> uh, and, and we we've started discussing. So, what? How would we talk about them? And Jamie just came clean and uh, became the hero of us all because, yeah, I, I completely share uh, this experience of them, and um, and I kind of and I, I'm very interested in why I do find them interesting, despite never having experienced any of the depths of what I enjoy reading about. Um, I don't think I've, I mean, I've, you know, the very idea of finishing any of these games, I'm, you know, often I can't get past the first few floors of these things, but let's, let's, um, let's define like, you know, the rogue like genre is actually quite a broad and, and often argued about, uh, arena. Um, should we just define, well, do we have a definition of what we want to talk about, or are we just going to talk about a series of games which sort of loosely fit in that area? I mean, certainly, though, we wanted to start with some of the the more pure rogue roguelikes. I wanted actually just to talk briefly about rogue first. Um, so we're going to talk about brogue, um, uh, and then some of the sort of offshoots of them, like uh, Shiran the Wanderer. Um, and um, maybe Ju uh, Jupiter Hell, which I think you could probably fit into this stuff, even though it has a lot of bells and whistles. But also we want to talk about some of the kind of more filigreed, rich, enriched ones as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, this is all up for grabs, but I think for me, I'm thinking about traditional roguelikes um, in the terms that they are, you know, the games that are 
the descendants of of Rogue. <laughs> um, so that's to say, these are mostly turn-based games. Uh, they mostly have procedurally generated levels. They have permadeath, you know, run-based gameplay. Pretty much everything we're going to talk about here has, you know, is a top-down view, often with ASCII characters rather than actual graphics, but not always. Um, in my head, I'm kind of, you know, I'm pushing out anything that's an action roguelite or a uh, uh, you know, a, a card game like Slay the Spire or a tactics game like um, uh, Into the Breach or um, something like Hoplite or even the Michael Bro, you know, Bro-like games like Cinco Pauses and and that sort of thing to just really focus in on the kind of dungeon delving e type experiences that are the kind of direct ancestors of, of Rogue and, and Angband and all that sort of stuff. Def. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess there is also, there's a lot of thematic similarities. But, you know, we should say that, you know, Rogue is a game about delving into a dungeon uh, and meeting various fantasy creatures in a very Lord of the Rings style, you know, kobolds, goblins, that sort of thing. Uh, finding potions and scrolls, magical items, swords, axes, beating them to death. And that carries through a lot of these traditional roguelikes. I think some of what we talk about might be like sci-fi themed, but a, a lot of it, you know, sticks fairly close, especially it, it know, is for the first couple of decades. Yeah, no, yeah. for sure. And it is incredibly close. Um, like, And it's really rewarding to see what's been taken and what's been built upon. So I, I've, um, so I did, I've never actually played um, rogue itself until um, the other day. And, it, uh, you know, I played a fair bit of Brogue, done badly in it, um, but don't played a fair bit of it. And so all the way down to the the, the keys that you um, use to control the, your, the, the character um, on the keyboard. So sort of doing diagonals and things, they're the same keys, um, uh, like y, uh, YU and BN. Um, it's some... Um, uh, drinking potions. The potions are called colors, just as they are in Brogue. Um, uh, the just the 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 way death works. Just it it is it is you know, and just the the visual, uh, the, you know, the, the visual uh, presentation. And then there's um, uh, so Brogue then breaks with with so so Rogue itself. You know, you've got a, a each floor of um of of the of the dungeons you're going down. Um, is a series of rooms joined by corridors, and like the corridors function differently to the rooms. Um, you won't find items in them. Monsters will go into the the corridors, but they don't spawn there. I don't think they spawn there anyway. Sometimes I come across them in there, and I figure that they spawned in in rooms elsewhere, but um, uh, they're the sort of adjuncts. Um, uh, Brogue opens it all up, but we'll also be talking about Sheeran the Wanderer, um, uh, which which does go back to this rooms and corridors concept, um, which is sort of I found sort of fascinating to remember. They're kind of yes, yeah, that's straight from from Rogue, and um, yeah, it's a it's a sort of it, it like uh, Rogue at the same time and you know to to to, to qu- you 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 don't know what the potions and um and scrolls and things that you pick up in fact i'm not sure there are scrolls the potions certainly you don't know what they are they're all randomized um and they're called a color so a brown potion in one game will not be the same potion that it is in another um the only way to find out what it is is to find an identify uh um scroll i think 
uh, I'm not that okay with 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 Brogue, um, or to just try it and uh, uh, and then you then it will be marked correctly from that point, um, uh, and that that is just sort of that is a sort of in, integral part of a lot of these games, um, and Angband and things really played with that system kind of a lot, and and Brogue it's at the center like it's a plays a really significant part in Brogue as well. Um, uh, down, like the save system as well. Like, you know, you've, you can save your game in, in Rogue. Uh, and if you go back into the game, it deletes that save. So uh, you, there's no saves coming that, that, that is possible. You kind of, you've, you're playing a game and you've got to save it and you, you know, you won't better go back again. And, uh, and that, that is a feature of definitely of, um, of Rogue and a lot of these games as well. You know, it's you're in this on one run and mistakes are permanent. Um, and I think it's that permanence aspect which probably is the through line for all of the games we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, the original designers of, of Rogue, you know, what they wanted to do was um, recreate their tabletop RPG campaigns or recreate the feeling of playing one of those, um, you know, where, where it would be different every time. And they wanted to kind of, you know, have that kind of, you know, emergent gameplay, as we call it now, um, to kind of keep them on their toes and stuff like that. And I think a lot of the games that are descended from there, one way or another, are, uh, deal in in basically that, in trying to throw new challenges at the players each and every time they enter the, the dungeon um, with a kind of established sort of tool set. Um, you know, the unidentified potions being, you know, a, a pretty big example of of how you can how how you can sort of introduce chaos into these games and and things that the players have to improvise around and and kind of you know find ways to to sort of uh, break through um yeah yeah i'd say uh playing it now rogue is a very slight game and incredibly luck based <laughs> <laughs> like the you i didn't feel there was an awful lot of um uh, ch- interesting choices I was making as I played it. You, the the environments are very very simple because you're in square rooms and uh, the there's no real difference between a bat and a snake um, and a hobgoblin apart from the letter that you're seeing. Um, some of them seem to like in the way that you know the way that you hit and you miss them and, and when they eventually die, it seems very very random and. And for that, for all those reasons, it's you know it it's not that enjoyable. <laughs> Certainly not when you play when you come through from a game like Rogue, which is well, so it much feels richer. very lonely. I always think Rogue. It feels like a very lonely experience because you're yeah. just in this void. You know, there's no there's often not colours in the version that you're playing, like there is in like latter net hack and stuff like that. So I, I feel like I often feel like it feels incredibly solitary. Whereas if you play net hack, which is basically you know Rogue times a million. Um, that's just sort of overspilling with characters and and monsters and kind of weird magic and stuff like that. Whereas Rogue, I always think, feels very sparse and kind of lonely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As a genre, it feels like it's a beneficiary of open source development, maybe more than any other genre. Yeah. Um, you know, because these games were were passed around on BBSs and on disc and stuff like that for years and years. Um, there were people, the people who were playing it were often technically savvy people at colleges and university doing computer engineering degrees, and they had access to the code base and they could just continually add 
to the games and and fork the games. And so I do think like ro- the original Rogue sets down a template and a structure where it's perfect for adding stuff to. You can just keep jamming in new creatures, new magic spells, new potions, new magical items, and so on and so on and so on. Um, yeah. And because because it's often been open source, people have done that again and again and again. So it's there's almost no other genre like it. No, it's pretty extraordinary, isn't it, that they've been adding. People are still doing new forks of NetHack and Angband. You know, now there's the, you know there's practically one coming out every week that someone's uh, put together. You can't think of any other game that's had that kind of longevity. Really extraordinary. Yeah. And you kind of, I think, you know, certainly in the early days, I think it it invited imagination. You know, you know, you, if you can plug new stuff into it, you know, and you are hinting at the idea of a of your tabletop game, you know, uh, being played out on your computer. So why shouldn't you be able to walk back into town again? Like go up to the top and go and go into town. If you're going into town, why can't you meet pe- people? And if you can meet people, why don't you have a system whereby you maybe you anger them and or maybe you make friends with them and you know uh, and you know when you when you pair that with the permanence of the generation of the levels, you you actually start making a fucking world and like you know and this is all starting in the kind of like the mid eighties, I think you know sort of I suppose born early mid early eighties really, and that's you know that's I would say. These these are among the very first games to kind of simulate a world. Absolutely. So I think it would be um, interesting to maybe have a think about uh, like where I, I'm interested just personally how you guys came to the idea of traditional roguelikes. Because I can explain mine very quickly. Uh, I was listening to a podcast called The Crate and Crowbar and they were talking about this game called Spelunky. <laughs> and I looked up Spelunky and it's, you know, and, and I and I, I got it and I played it once and then I realized I was going to have to do the whole game in a wanna and I couldn't believe that that was a <laughs> thing that existed. That just seemed ridiculous. And then, you know, Googling this term roguelike and that, you know, and, and realizing it was this whole other thing that Derek Hugh had kind of brought into a, a you know, a sort of the genre of a platformer. Uh, and that just seemed fascinating enough to kind of go digging and, and, and find Rogue and, and NetHack. But I'm interested, you know, and you guys particularly, you know, working in the games press and stuff like that, at what point the idea of a roguelike came across your radar? I don't particularly like this origin story because it means giving credit to Kieran Gillen. But um, <laughs> in around, it was before I joined PC Gamer, it would have been around 2003 or something like that. He wrote an article for PC Gamer about Zangband, Zangband TK, I think was the was the specific fork, which was this like eight page, really lush feature which mixed design analysis with like anecdotes from his own experiences playing the game, like different lives of different characters and adventures he'd gone on. And, you know, he, he, he made it sound fascinating, basically, like the anecdotes that the game was producing for him sounded really interesting. And so off the back of that, I think I went and downloaded Zangban DK and started playing it. And then went back and played, you know, other games in the genre, other versions of Zangband and Angband before it, and eventually NetHack and Rogue as well. Um, so that, you know, obviously 
I, I might have been the person talking about Spelunky probably too much on the Crate and Crowbar <laughs> when you were listening to it, Jamie. But, you know, the, one of the reasons I was so excited about Spelunky was, you know, I, I'd had a few years of familiarity with the genre at that point. And so seeing its design influence suddenly becoming more mainstream was really exciting to me at the time. Yeah, that's fascinating, yeah. isn't it? Because it's like someone taking something from two dimensions almost. And I know Spelunky's a 2D game as well, <laughs> but kind of, you know, it's it's kind of... It's almost like that moment in Fez where they the level turns around and your mind is blown by the kind of, you know, <laughs> the idea of seeing something in a new light. And I can imagine that feeling pretty awesome, actually, when someone's like, oh, my gosh, they've kind of turned this into something entirely new. Yeah. How about you, Alex? Yeah, I had a quite a different um, experience where um, I I was just really ignorant of all of it uh, up until... So I was working, it was shortly after I joined Edge magazine. So it was about 2007. And um, we were in, we would just, we'd be sent just random cartridges of games by the book, the publishers of kind of DS games and things like that. And um, often they would not be marked with anything. We would just have like biro kind of, you know, the, the debug, um, kind of cartridges uh they were kind of uh, rewritable cartridges uh, you see and so they would just have a pen name written on them and often the prs because they'd be sort of scrappy little games the prs wouldn't really put too much effort into telling you what they were but they would just send them anyway i think you know maybe they were expected by you know the the sort of the, the japanese head office that, that at least you know they'd be sent out anyway one of these came in um, this cartridge and so I st- stuck it in my DS and I started playing it and it's called Shirin the Wanderer and I <laughs> had no idea what that was um, I didn't really look it up but was kind of it there was something about it I was intrigued um, and started playing it and um, and I had that very f- special experience of of getting to explore this game without having any knowledge of how uh a, a, a roguelike should be or or was or even I didn't even know that it was part of this um this tradition at all so I came in completely cold and um and I played it and I was just stunned and wondering where the fuck this had come from um this sort of incredible uh design paradigm I suppose you'd call it um uh with all the attributes that we've been talking about and um and I uh, wrote the review of that game with this sort of sense of wonder. It's incredible. I think I think by that point I had actually done some <laughs> research to, to understand where it did it where it had come from, but um, but it felt really fresh and new. And um, uh, like around the same time, that was when um, Demon Souls came into our office in the same way. This kind of uh, you know magic marked uh, DVD um, <laughs> that that came in, and we sent it to. Um, uh, we didn't play it. I think we must have got checked. Like, what is this? And sent it to Simon Parkin, who would kind of pick up some of the sort of. Uh, we knew it came from Japan. Like, Simon, Simon might get something out of this. And he came back and said, "This is fucking amazing." And we went, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but it kept. But that was those were amazing days. Like that was just sort of this sort of incredible discovery. And yeah, that was my my routine. It's funny because you can still find online reviews of Shiren, uh, sorry, Shiren and other Mystery Dungeon games, which is, you know, basically Japanese roguelikes, um, 
which completely missed the point. <laughs> there's still there's still quite a few of them around where people have played it, seen that you die, and yeah. when you die, you go straight back to the beginning, and there's no way of saving your game. And just because they had no reference point for this thing at all, it just seems like a mistake to them, <laughs> which I, I don't blame them for at all. I you know I may well have made exactly the same mistake if someone had you know lent me that game or something. And you just sort of play it, and you die, and you go back to the start. And you say, "Well, this is bullshit. Like, what, what's the point of this? Games have been, games exist to do the opposite of this, <laughs> you know." Um, and uh, you know, it's it's quite an int- it's such a unique psychology uh, that kind of they they want to engender in you, just like a just like Demon Souls does, really. Like, it really want those games really want you to get to their headspace. You know, they're not really interested in convincing you. Although Sheeran is, I'd say, more than more than most. Um, but it's one of those weird things that when you look, you see traditional roguelikes just kind of pottering around in the background of of video game history, yeah, you know, yeah. from almost the beginning. I mean, even something like Diablo is basically, Definitely. I mean, it's not mm. even basically, literally is them trying to make Angband, <laughs> um, you know, a real-time Angband, um, all the way down to the, you know, return scrolls and, and and the idea of like procedurally generated weapons, you know, a plus four blade of explodey head or whatever, you know, that's that's an Angband invention. So yeah, it's it's so strange when you when it's like when you hear a band for the first time and then you start seeing them everywhere. You know, it's that kind of weird feeling. Definitely, yeah. With Sheeran, uh, so Sheeran the Wanderer is a series. Um, I can't remember right now. Like it's been it was it had been long running before this point, and yeah, it's part of this. Um, general uh, mystery dungeon um series but Sheeran the wanderer you are a kind of um a, a kind of a, a, a hatted uh kind of adventurer character and um in this game um food is really important and this is kind of like an archetype that i kind of that not all of the the roguelikes follow but um food is this constantly ticking down resource um which uh, means that your health will always um, regenerate, but uh, once you run out of food, then you will you will die. Um, your run will be over. Um, so you're kind of. I remember being really nervous during playing uh, playing Shirin, terrified about when the food ran out. But that particular game um, seemed quite stingy with it. I was trying to find it today. I was. I just. I. I I don't know. I think that must have been. They must have never sent the actual kind of the the um, commercial uh, cartridge for it. But um, it was very stingy with the food, and um, and I felt <laughs> quite stressed all the time through playing it. Um, I probably didn't get that far in the game um, uh, before writing the review. Um, I mean, that's. I mean, reviewing roguelikes. I mean, can you think of? The worst, worst genre. To, <laughs> I suppose esports games—they're horrible to review. But but roguelikes—the amount of time that it, it was clear that this game expected of you, um, or at least you know it's quite clear. Like the way that it names its flaws um, gives a sense of how big the journey is ahead of you, um, and just how early I was dying and things, and just knowing that kind of. <laughs> I really wasn't getting very far. Yeah, I didn't get very far in that game before writing the review. But it like its special things were really clear right right from the start. Um, and that's um, but in some of its atmosphere, very weird atmosphere, just very um, friendly, but and cartoonish. 
but with a sense of surreal um, otherworldliness, which, um, yeah, it's quite affecting. Like, you know, yeah, that, yes, brings me back. With you, Graham, like, what is it that, like, um, brings you to these games? Like, what is it that kind of, you know, because, I mean, I, mean, I don't actually, I've talked a bit about to Alex about this, but I don't know with you, like, maybe you're an absolute master at roguelikes. I don't know. <laughs> but, like, have you ever completed one of the the sort of hard hardcore ones? No, no, I'm exactly the same as yeah. the two of you. And like our experience is so uniform across the three of us, I think that maybe this is just the experience of 95% of people <laughs> who play these games. Yeah, probably. Um, what I find is that when I'm playing a game, I need to feel as if I've accomplished something if I'm going to return to it. Uh, and more often than not, the, the simplest version of that is that it's a narrative game and I feel like I've made some progress to the narrative. The thing that brings me to roguelikes is that they generate stories. They're really reliable at producing anecdotes. Nine times out of ten, I'm not going to tell that anecdote to anyone. It wouldn't be interesting. But I still feel like I have a little narrative that I take away from it. And so even though I never get past you know, oftentimes when I play roguelikes, I don't get into double digits in terms of like the dungeon level I go to, even for games that I've played technically for dozens and dozens of hours. Um, but I'm very, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that because I'm still having new experiences and getting anecdotes out from, from every journey. And there's very few genres of game, even now, you know, where there's a, been a, an explosion of the number of procedural games there are there are very few genres of game that as reliably produce anecdotes and little stories and you know little new combinations of items and enemies and situations that make me come away and think oh cool that you know that was like a, a fun little complete experience that had a beginning middle and end even though the end was me dying on level four to a jelly <laughs> in a corridor um <laughs> and so i now find that across pretty much all of the traditional roguelikes do you find that that it requires getting deeper into the game to get the better and better stories, or do you find that that the quality of little personal stories is fairly consistent, you know, no matter how far you get? I find that you know this is in some ways the thing that makes roguelikes complicated is that the systems of the game do not change that much over the course of the game. Like the enemies get harder and more numerous maybe as you go down but they tend to on level one introduce all of the systems that you know like if you play brogue and you know it's been a long time since i've played NetHack and stuff like that but I, I remember them being similar but if you play brogue then on that first floor you you encounter a fairly large array of different enemies you'll encounter potions you'll encounter some magical armor you'll encounter scrolls you know like all these different things and so you can still engage with these systems from the off uh, the fact that you're not good at them or you don't understand the balance of them or how to min max your way through them doesn't in my experience matter um and although, you know, you go through Brogue and it does introduce more interesting enemies or harder enemies and that sort of stuff, like your your actual mechanisms for decision-making don't change that much. Am I wrong about that? Or do you guys feel similar? I feel pretty similar. I think I think Brogue's a really good case study, actually, because it, it's like, uh, uh, it gives you, it gives you, a, it, it just welcomes you in. <laughs> you know, it welcomes you in. You don't even have to... You can go through the first couple of levels on Brogue by just holding down the X key to auto-explore and pick everything up and kill everything. And as long as you don't get 
bit by an eel, uh, then you're fine. <laughs> um, and like uh, the thing is, is that is that I think with Brogue and with NetHack actually, which are two of the ones I've played the most. You know, I think the deepest I've ever got in Brogue was like level fourteen once. <laughs> you know, um, but. Uh, with those games, often the when you're at the absolute edge of your really quite rudimentary ability with the game, like when you're going like, oh my god, I'm getting as far as I've ever gotten here, or you know, I've got to this new area, or I've managed to level up this particular item, I think that's often the point where you get the best kind of stories because you're operating at your absolute limit, and then you're just about to kind of get overwhelmed by the monsters, and you go, yes, I've got a, a, a you know a potion of levitation, I can fly over this big fire pit, you know, and escape from all these monsters that are you know coming to get me and then you you do it and then it runs out you know two tiles before the end and you fall in and you die (laughs) it's like i think that's one of the things that's interesting about them like nethack whenever i've got deep in there you know i see people playing it and i watch them on youtube and they're just completely chill when i get you know more than the first few levels deep if i can get past the dwarfish mines in nethack on level seven or whatever they are like it just feels like walking through a minefield. It's so lethal, and whatever <laughs> means I've got to get there, I don't really understand well enough. So to sort of use properly, so I always I'm always going to die very very soon. And seeing how far I can push that with what I've acquired on the way is a really kind of um, kind of glorious feeling. I think. Yeah, yeah, and just to just to to go uh, back and sort of we're going to be talking about bro quite a few times. We've already popped up a few times with brian uh, brogue is a he's a rogue like it's a the designed by a guy called um uh brian walker um he's a really nice very nice man indeed um and uh it is very rogue um but what it adds is a very naturalistic environments and various systems simulated systems like f- spreading fire um spreading clouds of gas and that kind of thing it also introduces the idea of um, kind of uh, interesting locked door systems. So um, uh, Jamie uh, mentioned the idea of kind of levitating across a chasm. Um, so what this game will sometimes do is offer you like a, a level where um, an area of the level is behind an impassable chasm. You can't get to it, um, but there will be, or maybe a uh, levitating uh, scroll somewhere on that level that you can use to get across there. There are keys and locked doors as well, literally. Um, um, and that gives this game this sort of sense of uh, naturalism and almost puzzle uh, design, um, which which certainly wasn't really, it certainly wasn't present in, in Rogue itself. Um, and therefore, the things that happen in Rogue are very... Uh, chaos can come in, right? It feels like chaos. I think that good players, that never feels like chaos, as you were hinting <laughs> at there. But um, certainly for me, uh, you know, all hell can break loose, like slimes that keep multiplying or, you know, the, the bloat that explodes and, and leaves this kind of cor- uh, caustic gas, which sort of burns you away while you're trying to get out of uh, this spreading cloud. Um, uh, um, yeah that that's that's broke i i i love broke for that and it definitely feels for me yeah i agree with that i that feeling of um this is you know incremental uh incremental improvement very incremental um and being in situations which are beyond me but um you know 
surviving just a few extra turns is, a, is it feels great. But um, uh, but also with this game, the sense of being in a place is greater than most of these games, and uh, that's really special. You know, um, it has these very um, uh, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, atmospheric descriptions of um, items. You can always mouse over everything, and the floor is always has something to say about it, whether it's carpet or dry grass or um, things like that. Um, you know, there's always something it can say about the environment, and that that feels special as well. Like I always find that text um, and simple graphics do have a knack of making quite simple spaces. Uh, more interesting than they were if you would if they were being drawn in 3D or anything with the level of detail that's actually in the game. There is something quite beautiful about Brogue, I always think, like the yeah. way it renders its gases and its liquids, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, lava lighting our brooms and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, if people are interested in the level generation in Brogue, uh, uh, we'll link it in the show notes, but I interviewed the developer and he... I interviewed him specifically about the level generation and he produced a bunch of GIFs showing it in action, like different processes as it's as it's generating dungeon floors. It's really interesting the way it creates rooms, creates the corridors, and then cycles through them, basically making each one much more interesting than most like older roguelikes. And Brogue is the game that I would recommend. Like if someone wants to get into tra- traditional roguelikes, Brogue's always the one that I recommend they start with. It's, mostly because of the mouse controls. Like you don't need to learn 28 keyboard buttons in order to be able to play the game. You can do it entirely on the mouse. And as you say, Alex, you can mouse over everything in the environment to find out everything, what, it, what everything is. So if you don't remember what the letter R lowercase is, then you can just mouse over it and it tells you. And that makes all the difference in the world when you're first starting out. Yeah, it's a very friendly, in, in all in all, I mean, it's a very stern challenge, but it's a very friendly, uh, you know, it, it it tries its hardest not to allow uh, the system, you know, the game itself to get in the way of that challenge. Um, so uh, you can, so if you if you click, click anywhere on a level um, that you've already been, your character will just move there. But if you see a new threat and rat appears and in, 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 in in view uh it will pause and it will stop and now you you can you can make a choice about what you want to do and that um it's a very uh generous game like that it's it's also a game where you can sort of choose your level of participation it feels like at least in those early floors it's like one of my favorite things to do in brogue is just make a rule where i have to read every scroll in every potion uh, and drink every potion the second that i discover it you know yeah. as you said earlier alex you discover a potion and it just says a pink potion you don't know what it does you can wait until you find an identifying scroll or something but you can also just drink it and i would say like eight times eight times out of ten it's not something that's purely negative that happens it's something interesting that happens you know like it'll open up a hole underneath you and you'll plunge further into the depths and you take some damage, but you're also now on a different floor in a completely different situation. Or um, it'll make you hallucinate 
or make a bunch of enemies spawn around you, or it'll shoot out a wave that causes every enemy on the level to aggro and start fighting with one another, or it'll make you levitate and suddenly you can get across that chasm that was blocking your path in front of you. And like, there are so many different ways it could go, and a lot of Brogue feels like that. Like, you, you, one of the early enemies is a frog that, um, when it bites, you know, hits you or whatever, causes you to hallucinate yeah. that it's different enemies one of the other early enemies is a monkey and what the monkey does is just like steal something from your backpack and run away uh and it can like steal like your best weapon or your like you know some cool magical item like all of these things are elements of chaos that you can sort of skirt around if you want to or if you do want to produce like an anecdote and just have fun and just trigger the chaos then you can and the game doesn't immediately strike you down it's not not a roguelike that immediately is going to punish you and kill you uh, it's going to give you an interesting experience instead one of my favorite things that ever happened to me with with one of those toads was uh, i was playing you know i was on level four or five or something and i got um, bit by the toad which causes you to hallucinate and <laughs> i wasn't sort of paying attention that it had bit me and i got really scared because I, <laughs> I was like oh my god there's an ogre there's an ogre, an ogre. Like <laughs> one of the toughest enemies that you ever you encounter in those early levels around right? i was like oh no and I was like, oh, phew, it's, it's not an ogre. It's it's a cobalt or something. I, I was just hallucinating. So I went around the level um, and the hallucination wore off. But I hadn't really, wasn't really paying that much attention to it. And then the, o for the ogre came back onto the screen. And in my head, I just thought, yeah. oh, well, that's, just, that's just a cobalt because I hadn't <laughs> made the jump that actually I was stopped hallucinating. It was just a real ogre which I just sort of tried to saunter past and it just hit me and, and killed me in one hit, you know, because um, I'd assumed I was hallucinating it. And like, it was really funny. It made me laugh. And it's like <laughs> that thing where you're sort of bringing your own character and your own sort of experiences into the game. And I, I always think that's a wonderful thing. And Brogue is really good at like, you know, you'll find a monkey or, uh, you know, tied to a post mm. and you can rescue it. And the monkey is now your friend, you know. And when that monkey dies, as it will, you will feel <laughs> genuine sadness at this tiny little, you know, M on the screen, which has been your loyal companion for the last probably about four minutes before it dies. You know, <laughs> I, I just think that's such a little elegant thing to give you a little pal. Uh, I mean, you can free an ogre as well, which is pretty good, actually. If you free an ogre, and they'll lumber after you and punch people in the head, which is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're really special. One of the things you can do in Brogue is play a seeded, uh, run. So um, if anyone listening would like to play the run that, um, I don't know if Graham, you had a go, but me and Alex did. Uh, yeah, I did as well. You did as well. So we can report back on that. So if you control click on new game, it'll give you the chance to put in a uh, a, a, a number to, to sort of set the same version of the game to play. So if you put what will hopefully be the date of this episode, which is 2705 2022, and we'll put that in the show notes so you've got it. But if you put that into the Brogue um, Community Edition, which is the one to play, and we'll put a link in there too. Uh, we all played that. I think, <laughs> I'm not sure how well we did. Uh, Alex, <laughs> would you like to report back on your experience of that particular seed? It went really badly, very badly. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's floor two. I've, I basically uh, explored all of floor two um, in the... Um, so, so hopefully if you're going to play this, uh, come back to this section because there will be spoilers, but, um, yeah, in the, uh, the Southwestern corner of floor two, there is a room. Uh, so uh, this is actually, uh, th 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 there's a levitation 
uh, and uh, chasm uh, sort of feature in this particular one. Um, so levitated over to it, nearly ran out of levitation. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, that's right. I got over, uh, realized I had no levitation left and then thought, oh shit, how am I going to get back? And then there was another levitation scroll, which was very nice. Thank you, Brian Walker. Very good. Um, we, we were doing well. Um, found uh, some, some, some nice gear. Um, went into the room in the very, very uh, southwestern corner. And um, there was a... Uh, Oh, some nice stuff. Um, I can't remember what it was now, um, but but good gear. And there was a, a dagger, like a good dagger as well. But it's next to a bloat. And bloats are assholes. Um, when they die, they ex- they explode in this caustic gas um, that rapidly spreads. And so it started spreading. And I, for some stupid reason, uh, because this is, room is a, was a dead end, I uh, did not walk out through the door in the east, I went to the west, hoping that the cloud wouldn't be big enough that I could just stick in the corner and wait it out. Um, reader, it did not <laughs> stop. <laughs> and I, I was caustic to death. I guess all the skin fell off my bones, presumably, mm. and that was that. Um, yeah, so that, that was the end there. You did a bit better, I think, Jamie. Only by virtue of falling, because <laughs> I got hit by a pit bloat and a pit bloat basically when I wasn't paying attention and when you walk into one of those they explode and then drop you down to the level below so on level two uh in the southeastern corner I hit that pit bloat I dropped down to the next level um, I managed to land on the, the large bridge that's in the center of there so that's quite wow. easy or, or possibly a, <laughs> but there's like a single path bridge which I landed on and I thought oh that was good and then I walked along the bridge where I espied a um, uh, a sleeping goblin conjurer. Um, oh, they're assholes. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought I would throw some darts at him to kill him. Hmm. I threw a dart at him. He woke up. He summoned some spectral blades. Um, I should have run at that point. But what I decided to do was throw more darts at him. But they <laughs> hit the spectral blades <laughs> instead of him. And then I died. <laughs> <laughs> so on level three with 89 gold <laughs> so technically uh, I reached level five. Oh wow so I'm, I'm the winner of this competition <laughs> I almost died I almost died immediately I almost got entirely fucked by a jackal adjacent the, the starting room because the first room I think it's got like a warhammer in it and an axe oh I'm, am I right Ooh, I or, no not in my version not in my version either. In mine, in mine, the the one I played, which sounds like um, Jamie's, there's a. Uh, it starts with this sort of um, great big water, great big lake, almost directly in front. Maybe, maybe I bollocks this up. <laughs> but Let's I, hear I, it anyway. I, I think I typed in the right seed, but maybe not. But uh, yeah, so there was a warhammer and a, an axe in that first room, and the warhammer did like plus fifteen damage. Which I thought, you know, sounded pretty great. What I didn't didn't realize was that my character was basically too weak to accurately <laughs> wield this warhammer at all, and so I went and tried to attack a sleeping jackal in an adjacent room and missed, <laughs> despite <laughs> the fact that it was asleep, and then just continued to miss um, until it almost completely destroyed me. But luckily, there were some some healing spores nearby. I was able to pop 
switch to my axe that I also picked up and, and killed the jackal, restore myself back to full health with the, with the spores, and, and then explore on. And I made the rule for myself on this game that anything I find, I'm going to put it on, drink it, or read it immediately. Good. So I found some scale mail, I immediately put that on, turned out it was cursed. And, <laughs> and, it, and it constricted around me painfully, um, such that I could not take it off. <laughs> so that was fine. Um, I, got, I got onto the second floor. And there was a huge chasm there and a portion of levitating that I was able to use that and get across. That felt really cool. But eventually I got down to the fifth level, but um, it turned out that the stairs down I found just led to a dead end. They just led to a room with like a a trap in the middle of it that when I stood on it, caustic gas poured out. (laughs) And then the only other room adjacent to that was had the path blocked by lava. So I had to go back up to the fourth floor. Yeah, I was able to hide in the corner and like you, Alex, and, and, and wait out the caustic gas. Went back up to the fourth floor to try and find another another route down. But that the fourth floor was just lousy with <laughs> with caustic gas, basically. Um, so I got whittled down by sentient bladders filled with gas, much like myself. <laughs> yeah. And, go- and, and, as, and just like you guys, Jamie, uh, goblin conjurers with spectral blades. Yeah, so I died in the fourth floor, but I did technically reach the fifth. I oh, love the uh, the sort the story of that guy who, like, within moments of entering this uh, labyrinth, found a weapon to kill a god with, but I <laughs> completely <laughs> failed to uh, be able to use it before putting on the first armor. It's it's they're very good uh, ineptitude simulators. These games, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I do see. I do find that kind of this game. I, there, I've picked up so many. I I've probably never been able to wield a warhammer because I've never gotten far enough to be able to upgrade my strength enough to actually use this shit. <laughs> it's like, like, I've only ever really used the dagger and short sword and things like that because, because because you just I never got far enough. I think the furthest I ever got was because the one thing about this game it only really has sort of two methods of upgrading. I mean that's not quite right, but you have potions of strength which level up your strength, which is your main stat basically, and then you have scrolls of enchantment which will give special effects to kind of basically anything. Um, and they have lots of, you know, they're, they're always worth using. And I think the first I ever got in the game was by enchanting a whip again and again and again. And it was just this, like, amazing, mm. uh, like, power rush of being able to wallop people from across the room and just sort of... But, of course, what happens is you get overconfident and then die, <laughs> which is always what's going to happen in one of these games where <laughs> the moment you think it's going to be... going to Oh, this guy, I'm going to piss the way for the rest of this dungeon. This is fine, you know, and then... And then two seconds later, you're you're on fire and dead and exploded. I think the most exciting progress I've ever made was, I think I managed to rescue a monkey. And then I later managed to rescue two ogres. And so I was just like this rampaging mob of incredibly <laughs> powerful creatures that were all fighting on my behalf. But then I got bitten by a toad and I hallucinated and I couldn't tell my own ogres apart <laughs> oh, from no. the enemies because they kept because they were everything was just shifting into different creatures. So of course I attacked my own ogres by mistake. At which point they just walloped me and killed me to death. Man, what a tragedy! Yeah, my pals, <laughs> my pals turned on me. <laughs> I guess, oh. I guess, actually, I suppose they were hallucinating as well because <laughs> they were probably, we probably all got soaked in the same stuff. I've done that on NetHack. I've, I've hallucinated and killed my own dog. 
which there is a special <laughs> there's a special message for when you do it. Like I can't quite remember what it is, but it's like you know, you, you, betrayal surges through your body or something. Like that. <laughs> it's um the so Sharon's quite interesting the way that it is totally different. Like it's much more. It doesn't have any of the that all that depth. It's it's you know as far as I've played anyway in these games, it's um much more about uh cut and thrust uh combat where you you will see a you'll you'll fight a lot of enemies and there's a lot of focus on on improving weapons and getting new armor and, and getting new items that help you fight you get quite a lot of items and things um uh you you and instead i think that the focus uh in in shirin is much more about pro like uh, meta progress. Um, there are lots of systems that allow you to save um, uh, things that you've gathered on one run, so that you can keep them for another run. There are ways of, uh, you know, maintaining um, what the, you know the, the biggest successes um, as a result. Um, there are characters and things who there's a who have persistent. I think they with persistent sort of, um, you know, you're giving them things and I can't remember exactly how it works, but you give them things and, and, and participate in their storylines and, and that's persistent across runs as well. And so the little towns that you go to, they will build up and things will change in them as over the course of the game. Um, Brogue certainly like every run, the, the, what the only thing that you're building is your knowledge and experience and ability to make better decisions in, in the future, in theory. Um, and that's quite that's kind of like it seems to be two sort of divergent ways sort of this this genre tends to go yes although sheeran actually does both um so sheeran the wanderer and the the game to get is sheeran uh the wanderer five i'm not going to try the title because it's ridiculous the the tower of fortune tower and the tower of, of fate it's got a ri- that's right yeah. <laughs> i think that's what it is um yeah. i think is a masterpiece. I think it's my favourite sort of traditional roguelike, and it was an absolute revelation getting it on on Switch last year. So what you've just said is correct, in uh, um, Alex, in that it does it has quite a lot of um, you know stuff that carries over between runs, but that's only true for a portion of the game. Right. So the game has a a kind of set story kind of mission to get up this tower and feed, fight a god at the top. Um, to bring this girl back to life. That seems a lot, doesn't it? To fight a god, I'm struggling with snakes <laughs> and shit. <laughs> but uh, it is basically the t- t- tutorial because that game is insanely enormous. And though on that kind of main mission, you can find ways to escape, you can get an escape crawl, scroll which will send you um, back to the village or you will um, you can take certain grasses that will... Will um, if you die, they will send you back to the beginning with all your items intact, and then you can upgrade your weapons and stuff like that. Um, but the real game, Sheeran fans will tell you, is in the post-game dungeons, which is a weird name for them because you can go to them basically straight away in the sort of dungeon center. Um, and there's lots of different types of them, and lots of them have uh, sort of weird mutators on them, like. Um, you know, your hunger decreasing in real time or you can't drop items or certain enemies will spawn or there's no day-night cycle. The game is full of all these kind of crazy um, and various 
systems and effects and stuff like that. Uh, some of those allow you to take in items. So that's when you can bring in your stupidly leveled up shield and sword and all that sort of stuff. Right. But many of them don't allow you to do that. Um, many of them you just have to start off and it really is like a rogue or a brogue experience where you just start off with absolutely nothing and it's you against uh, you know, your wits in, in one of these dungeons. It's insanely hard. The first time you do them, you have to get to level 30. The second time you do them, you have to get to level 100. <laughs> and they are um, insanely challenging. I've never completed any of them, I think, to the highest degree. And what's fascinating is, is that there's also ways that you can slightly mitigate your item pool in terms of what spawns there, but only a little bit. And it's kind of far too complicated to go in how that's done. But the game is that first sort of story mission before you get to all the post-game stuff is, I mean, it is kind of the tutorial, but it's also a really robust challenge. It took me a good like 50 hours to do it because it's about like teaching yourself how to play. Um, but uh, it once you've kind of got that kind of uh, skill set in hand, you're able to take that into the the post game, and 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 that's where it sort of really begins. There's so much in that game, um, and it's wrapped up in this beautiful package, um, just gorgeous to spend time in. Beautiful music, everything's designed like like the most like dreamy jrpg you can you can possibly imagine it's so kind of cute and charming um and but what it does disguise is one of the most punishing and systems heavy games i think i've ever come close (laughs) to you know and levels are constantly threatening to kill you in various ways because it's like a lot of Japanese games in that it's a single series where they kind of release sort of the same game over and over again, but iterating on it. The meta game that the players have been kind of engaged with against the developers, which is Spike Chunsoft, um, over this kind of over generations now, is such that like it's a real deadlock. You know, there's no way to cheat the game. <laughs> well, there are ways to cheat the game actually, but there are also ways in which those cheats are are sort of stripped away from the players as well. Um, one other thing I'll mention before I stop infusing about Sheeran is that it has this really unique rescue system. So if you go into one of the, if you die in one of those post-game dungeons, you can either just die and, 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 and go back to the start, or you can ask to be rescued, which you can do three times. And what that means is, um, another player has to get to you. So they'll play the same seed that you played for the, for the, level that you're playing they have to get to your body and then they can resurrect you and leave you an item to help you on your way and you can do that three times and then you're gone for good some of those levels are very very punishing and it is mostly a um the game is very very popular in japan and it is mostly japanese people who will come (laughs) and help hapless people like me who have died for the second time on floor you know 13 of a hundred floor dungeon (laughs) <laughs> and they'll often drop a item. Sometimes that item will have a kind of ironic <laughs> kind of vibe to it, you know, about, oh my God, how did you how did this happen here? And sometimes some like Japanese, you know, like they can leave a note as well. Dark Souls type type way, you can leave notes. And sometimes they're in English and sometimes they're in Japanese. 
I love it because you don't get anything for doing that, right? They get nothing for doing that. You get a little ranking on the board, um, on the leaderboards of who's rescued the most people, but it literally is bragging rights. Um, and so it's this wonderful thing. I, f- I find it sort of weirdly moving that you kind of have this moment of connection between people who it's not like they're in your instance of the game. You know, they're in a kind of clone of your instance and they can sort of resurrect you, but they can send you this message and you can send them a little gift and a thank you note as well. Oh, and nice. it just feels like such a wonderful little moment where you're touching someone, you know, thousands of miles away in in, in Japan, you know. Um, yeah, and I just think that's a wonderful wonderful thing about it and it's insanely popular there so there's always people you know often you'll you'll die in you'll some obscure dungeon on some like floor and within 20 minutes some maniac has got down to you and and resurrected you uh already yeah so yeah uh sheeran i think the way i suppose what i was driving at is the way that that mitigates its hardness is by having so much in there which is appealing and wonderful and the production values are so high um that you know it kind of it kind of gets around a lot of the the hardness um that the traditional roguelikes from the west tend to have despite really you know being at least as hard as them under the surface yeah yeah i um i'm going to play it a lot more now thank you jamie <laughs> although it does sound <laughs> it does sound like you're cheating a little bit it sounds like you're really good at it uh, and this is actually a podcast about being, being shitted, so uh, you shouldn't really have technically told us any of that. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, the, the, with that main story, quote unquote, the tutorial, you know, the real game starts here, bollocks. Once you kind of work out how to upgrade your weapons and how to kind of reasonably escape, like I worked at one point, I worked out a thing where it's like, oh, if I buy a bunch of these escape scrolls from this person you know, late in the game, um, I can, as long as I reach this blacksmith, I can get him to level up my weapon, escape, go back to him, level it up. And that was just like, it's one of those games which sort of wants you to break it like that as well. So it's kind of, it's kind of fun like that as well. That sounds good. Oh, I think I'm like, because I've been playing on PC and it does, it. it's not a PC game at all. It's one of those games that just feels completely wrong there. So I think I might get it. Yeah, it's one of the few roguelikes which has a, has controller um, support as well, yeah, uh, which is nice. Yeah, you're tempting me as well. It's always a series I've avoided because people say things like, "Well, the real game starts at level 100 after you've defeated God," and I'm like, "Well, that's <laughs> that's never going to happen. I'm going to spend the entire game getting to level 13 of the tutorial and feeling bad about myself." But you've you've made a good case for it. Oh, it's too yeah, charming it, to make you feel bad. It is. It, 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 in, in effect, it's too charming. And if you ever go on the Discord, the Sure and the Wanderer Discord is one of the loveliest places on the internet because it's a bunch of like, it's a lot of Japanese people or like bilingual like people from Japan who speak really good English who are just so, just want to spread the love and spread the word of this game. You know, they're always doing like fan translations and special mm. fan patches. And if you ever ask for some advice, they'll give it to you. It's just like a really wonderful community as well. Um I have a uh, one of the people on that Discord sent me a link. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes. Of like, it's the Twitch category for what the name of the game is in Japanese, because it's different in Japanese than it is. So I can click that and I can see all the Japanese people playing the game. And sometimes I enjoy uh, going on their channels and just sort of uh, watching them play at an insanely high level <laughs> uh, uh, to like audiences of quite you know quite big audiences too. You know, I'll stop jabbering about uh, about Sheeran. But yeah, people, more people should play it because it is wonderful. 
Graham, you you said that um that that you played Zank Band and things really uh, you know sort of sort of what, twenty years ago whatever it is now fifteen <laughs> yeah. years ago. So where did where did your interest in it go after that? What are some of the games that you've done badly in since? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are two other games that I kind of wanted to talk about. One of them is Dwarf Fortress because Dwarf Fortress is better known for its fortress mode, obviously, because that's that's how the game started. It's it's not really a, it is a roguelike in the sense that there's kind of permadeath and and it's ASCII and it's procedurally generated, but you're you're building a fortress and managing a little society or community of dwarfs and trying to survive but it's also got the adventure mode and uh, adventure mode is more or less a traditional roguelike and it's much more accessible way of experiencing all the simulation stuff and world generation stuff the dwarf fortress is doing because rather than dealing with terrible menus to manage your how many barrels of wheat you've got <laughs> and dealing with uh, like a 2D top-down ASCII game that still has a Z-axis somehow and trying to manage building <laughs> underground water systems and all this sort of stuff. You you can play it like you would more or less any other roguelike. You're going to walk around, you're going to talk to some people, you're going to get some quests, you're going to bump into people to attack them, that sort of thing. But it uses that overworld that the game generates whenever you you spill up a, a new game of Dwarf Fortress. So you could do it in the same the same world that you've been building fortresses in. In fact, you can in adventure mode if you manage to start or reach the same part of the world, explore your own fortress or the remnants of your own destroyed fortress as a a roguelike adventurer. And it's just, it's it's a really cool way of experiencing that place. So like you can go to a procedurally generated town and meet a man and it'll have uh, procedurally generated like local monsters in the caves and then it will generate dialogue for all the people in the town so you can talk to them and they'll tell you about, you know, we really need someone to deal with this the spectral warrior in the cave nearby that comes out at night and kidnaps people and has been murdering them. And then you can say, okay, I'll sort it out for you. And, you know, make a friend in the local tavern that will come with you on the journey and, and go off and have this very trad fantasy adventure story uh, in, a, in a really easy way. And mm. so I wrote an article about this a few years ago, actually called Dwarf Fortress, the detailed roguelike that's easy to play. Uh, which people went nuts at <laughs> the suggestion that Dwarf Fortress was was easy to play. Like even the Dwarf Fortress subreddit, like kind of like took offense <laughs> at, <laughs> at the suggestion that their game was in any way accessible. Um, but I, I I really think it's like it's a really overlooked part of Dwarf Fortress, and in some ways it's like overlooked. I think by the roguelike community as well because. That's not how people, it's not the dominant way of playing Dwarf Fortress or the thing that gets talked about the most in it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I, 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 I've seen it as the menu option and wondered what it would be. And I, I, I think, yeah, it's very, it's an amazing premise to know that it's you can play an adventure in a world that you already know because you've been building fortresses in it. But um yeah, does it feel directed enough? Does it feel very, very open-ended? Because one of the things about the other games we've been talking about is that they sort of, 
they're very directed in the sense of you're going down <laughs> um, or up in the case of uh, of Shirin. Um, uh, but this one seems more like a sort of open-ended adventure, um, sort of the roguelike, the Skyrim version sort of thing. It, yes, to a certain extent. But so they did a, did a bit bunch of work on this mode basically a few years ago like they spent months and months just working on adventure mode mm. rather than the fortress mode and at that point they introduced a bunch of systems that allow you to give the experience direction so there's a bunch of hooks there that you can go find to give you those quests that generate the generate a specific experience and so that's what I'm talking about, where you can you can choose to start the game near or in any town or city, and that town or city will be filled with NPCs who, if you talk to them, they will tell you like available quests that you can go on. And as soon as you accept one of those, it's now a directed experience. And you're still going to move across an over like a contiguous overworld rather than levels of a dungeon. Um, and on that journey you might meet like encampments of enemies or like uh travelers that are moving across the world and all this sort of stuff so you can have like side adventures as you go but you still have this like directed thing of well well, there's this monster nearby i'm going to kill the monster if i succeed in killing the monster i'll get some shiny armor and then i can go back to town get a reward and get another quest and go out again and so yeah obviously that's that's still more like skyrim but it still feels like a directed experience because of those hooks yeah I think another one that's really good at that kind of stuff is uh, Tales of Magile, which used to be Tales of Middle-earth and is now Tales of Magile for obvious <laughs> reasons. That's a really good um, game because it's kind of pick-up-and-play-ish, um, and it has a similar kind of overworld, underworld, uh, wombling-free um, a sort of <laughs> setup, um, which is really friendly and kind of has that kind of same... I mean, it's written rather than procedural. It, it doesn't have the kind of robust, you know, hard proc gen of dwarf fortress but it does have that kind of joy in you know wandering into a into a forgotten town and getting some procedurally generated quests to go and fight some procedurally generated monsters for procedurally generated gear um and i think yeah that's a that that can be a really fun the kind of hack and slash vibe of it as well is can be really uh, kind of entertaining too um i always find playing a adventure mode dwarf fortress kind of terrifying because the worlds are so enormous and so different every time, and there's very little you can kind of uh, rely on, and it feels they just feel very expansive and big in a kind of way that sort of dwarfs Elden Ring. Even it's kind of there's such <laughs> huge, um, imposing uh, worlds that you sort of find yourself in a tavern in. Yeah, wonderful stuff, really. It has a lot of the same advantages to me as Brogue does. Like Alex, you talked about the text and Brogue being really evocative. Dwarf Fortress is obviously famous for its battle descriptions and yeah. its its text of of you know flesh being rent from the bone and all this sort of stuff, and so the, and at the second that you walk into a tavern and you meet a, a dwarf who says I will follow you as long as you show me a show me death basically, <laughs> you know he just wants to die he'll come with you as long as you can guarantee that he will die. <laughs> then immediately I'm like, cool, this is my friend. I love this guy. <laughs> Let's, you know, we're going to go <laughs> fuck some dudes up. And then, you know, it's, it's the monkey thing again of the second your monkey dies four minutes later when that dwarf, you know, is punched so hard in the neck <laughs> that his spine snaps in half. <laughs> it's you're like, wow, this is amazing. 
Dwarf Fortress obviously also has the best procedurally generated monsters as well. Like some of those forgotten beasts that you get in uh, in Dwarf Fortress. I've never encountered one in Adventure Mode, but I'm sure you must get them there. Yeah. Some of the most bizarre and weird sounding abominations, I think. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it does a great job as you're exploring the open world as well. Because like, you'll come across uh, an encampment and think, hey, maybe they're friendly. And then it will just be like this eight foot tall brute with a whip who (laughs) as soon as he sees you just immediately charges towards you knocking you down and starts slashing at you like it's it's dripping with character at every point the other the other roguelike i wanted to talk about was neo scavenger Mm. and i think with this i may be pushing at the edges of what counts as a traditional roguelike have either of you played neo scavenger I think I briefly had a dalliance with it, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, I didn't get any far, very far with it. Yeah, I played around with it, but nothing, nothing. I think I played around with it after hearing you talk about it on the pod a few years back. <laughs> so it's Neo Scavenger is turn based, set in a post apocalyptic world. Um, you're moving across it grid square by grid square, but it's not procedurally, procedurally generated. It's a static world. And, and it has some graphics in it. So it's still a 2D game. It's still top-down. There's no animation or anything, but it's not ASCII. So that these are the reasons why I think I'm pushing at the limits here. But it still feels a lot like a traditional roguelike um, in terms of the decisions you're making. You start by choosing a character class uh, with various perks and if optionally debuffs. Um, and then you wake up in like a cryogenic pod in this post-apocalyptic world wearing nothing but like a hospital gown um, with the noise of some beast clawing at the door outside. And based on what skills you've chosen during character generation are going to determine how you're going to deal with the situation. Like if you've, if you've chosen to be good with computers, there's a computer terminal there you can use to like double lock the door so the beast can't get through and then you can escape through a window. If you choose to be good at like fighting abilities, you can open the door, defeat the beast so thoroughly in combat that you're so impressed by yourself that you automatically retrieve the VHS security tape showing your fight. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. And then just carry around the VHS tape tape with you. It just becomes like an adventure item that you can then like try and barter with people <laughs> to trade this amazing like snuff film you made of you beating a wolf man to death. Um, <laughs> and and it's like you're on, and it's it's very simulated. So and it's a survival game. So you're you're only wearing a hospital gown, which means you don't have pockets, which means you can only carry what you can hold in your hands. And so one of those slots is taken up by the VHS tape. Um, And so it becomes this game of like scavenging as per the name across this wild post-apocalyptic landscape for food, for water, for, you know, like the most exciting thing you find in the early game is a plastic bag. Suddenly now you can carry (laughs) five things because bags can contain four things in them. You put your VHS tape in a plastic bag and you feel on top of the world. You find a man dead in his car and you steal his trousers and you're like, yes, I'm doing great. Then you, you know, go into a a forest and find some water, drink the water and die (laughs) in the night (laughs) from an infection because you didn't boil the water before you drank it. And it was... It was toxic. 
Um, or you're just walking down the street, say, and your plastic bag rips <laughs> and everything that's inside it just spells out onto the road. And you have this like terrible moment of, oh no, like I literally can't carry all my belongings. Which do I take with me? Uh, the bottle of water, the food, or the, the flick knife I found? <laughs> um, but it's, so it has these, you know, it's very simulated and it has these roguelike style systems in it. You're making decisions right from the office, super compelling. But the fact that it's this uh, predetermined world, I think, makes it really easy to get into as well. Because you start off, the entire world is covered in a fog of war. You uncover it over the course of playing. You die. You're set completely back to the beginning to start over again. And the fog of war is back. But you in your own head know, well, to the north, that's where I died in an arena uh, fighting a robot for uh, a squad of what seem to be cannibals who are going to eat me if I lose. So I know where they are now. Don't get again. <laughs> uh, and I know why I died. And so, but like you can either decide with your next go, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go back there because that seemed pretty grim. I'm going to walk east and find something else. Or you can decide, well, actually I am going to go back there and I'm going to make different decisions this time i'm going to sneak in rather than going in through the bouncer in the front door i'm going to make diff- i'm going to go talk to the same person i spoke to this time but i'm going to make different dialogue choices and see if i can get a different outcome and so it has this thing of you always feel like you have an opportunity to do better the next time by kind of like following through the, your the footsteps that you did the last time if you want to or if you get stuck going a completely different way and now like procedural generation is obviously like a really big part of what keeps roguelikes interesting but it also can prolong the learning process because the obstacles that you met the last 10 times might be completely different on the 11th time so the stuff that you've learned you don't necessarily get to apply on your 11th go um but neo scavenger doesn't have that problem and it can feel at its best like you know like you're playing fallout the roguelike essentially it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, you know, a game like NetHack, the the levels are procedurally generated, but the structure of the game is fundamentally fixed. You know, and that I think when people finally sort of learn the degree to which that is true, that there's always going to be a certain level at a certain point between a certain amount of floors. That's how people begin to kind of crack and break those games, and you mm. get the people who say like they wish NetHack was harder because it's it's too easy once you've worked all that stuff out. And it sounds like uh, Neo Scavenger has has something of that in it, where you can actually, you know, your your sort of uh, growing knowledge is more than just your like ability with the systems. It's actually about the physical structures of the world around you and being able to kind of grok that. Um, which I think is a, you know, a nice way to, to sort of learn these things. I think, yeah. Yeah. In a, in a way you can compare it to Outer Wilds, which is a game where, you know, it, it obviously resets the loop every, is it 15 minutes or something like that, but you're retaining the own knowledge in your head. And so like New Scavenger has that very similar loop. The other similarity it has with Dwarf Fortress is uh, a granular wounding system, which turns out to be, one of the things I'm most compelled by in any video game. Again, it's again, it's it's another game in which you can get like punched really hard in your arm and get a description of your broken bones, uh, and I, you know, that then has like an impact on your decision making because although maybe you survived the fight, you might then die of your wounds in your sleep in the back of a abandoned car that you found, <laughs> and it's just like 
immediately that's an evocative story to me. There's that game Stone Shard. Have you played that one? It's a very beautiful pixel art, uh, traditional roguelike. Um, Marsh played it a little while on the pod, I think. But that also has a very granular injury. Uh, so you sort of go into your body and, you know, put splints in and apply potions to different body parts and stuff like that. Very uh, groovy, satisfying uh, sort of snake eater vibes. <laughs> I haven't played that, but I definitely will now. <laughs> it's extremely my bag. <laughs> What about you, Alex? Like, what have you played after your coming into the series, into the genre of roguelikes back in two thousand and seven? So, in and out of Brogue, Brogue has been probably the longest running kind of uh, light uh, failure game. Um, I think uh, I've been following Jupiter Hell. I wanted to, to mention. Well, I, was, I did. I mean, it, it's been patchy, really, but. Um, so I was going to talk about Jupiter Hell before then. There's a really interesting game called ZHP, um, which is came out on PSP a long time ago. Another Japanese hmm. game made by the people who made um, Disgaea. Um, so it has the same kind of three-quarter kind of isometric view, uh, pixel graphics, um, same sort of... It's presumably done in the same engine. It has the same sort of feel and sound with the text. And it has prinnies in it and that sort of thing but this is um uh it's a roguelike and um and it is just in the way that this guy are, uh, is a bananas um tactics game uh at zhp is a as bananas uh roguelike and um i don't really want to go too deep into it um but one of the things that makes me uh quite think about is the fact that um a lot of these games have the same fundamental systems, you know, rogue-derived uh, systems, um, and often have a few different systems on top of them, like the rescue uh, system in Shirin that um, that Jamie mentioned, um, and other things. Um, but but in general, that a lot of them have the same kinds of systems. Um, but it's the dressing that they they have uh, that that sort of the way they present them and the terms and terminology that they use to describe them. Um, and the way you access them, and the way the, the sort of the, the, the vagaries of how these particular ones work, um, like you know ZHP, uh, you, you I remember when playing it, a lot of it was about interpret like the early game was all about interpreting what on earth the characters were talking about, like what are they, you know, what is this system, what is this character saying they do for me and you realize oh okay okay they 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 just upgrade such and such or they allow you know they allow access to a certain kind of area um in zhp you're kind of um moving from area to area um uh in these little levels um i said i don't really want to go into it too too deeply because it's kind of obscure and, and and kind of quite odd but but it was a lot of fun and um yeah it for you too, do you, you know, I found Shirin going through the tutorial for the fate of Tower and things. A lot of it was kind of going through dialogue to wait until they kind of give me the keyword of, of for what, what the function of the thing that they do is, you know, oh, they sell the pots that allow you to do the thing. <laughs> ZHP is actually newly relevant because it's just released on PC. 
that's why I, it popped into my head because I was while I was describing, I was thinking I have I meant to play it today, but I couldn't find my PSP, um, and I can't remember enough about this to talk about. So if I say enough times, uh, I don't want to go into too deeply. Uh, that would it. But now I realise why why it was in my head. Yeah, yeah, I saw the news stories. Never never heard of that one. I'm definitely going to check that one out. Is it as obnoxious as Disgaea is? Yes. Like you are you saying? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it really is. No, it doesn't. No, it's, it's not quite as peppy, um, but it does. Uh, so it's it's themed. Uh, I can't remember what the, the the proper name for it is, but uh, like a sort of um, a Japanese kind of um, action serial with great sort of great big heroes f- who's fighting the other heroes. Um, and you are a failed hero that's meant to be saving the earth, and um, and you died, but you've you've been brought to this dimension where you're going to be trained up to be actually worthy of saving the earth, um, and you're kind of going to go through levels a bit, but you know to train up and get better and better, so that you you can actually succeed at it. Um, so there are lots of characters who who are very very. Uh, uh, Japanese voiceover artist style, like American squeaky voice people. <laughs> One thing I'd say about Sheeran is is that it's um it's not voiced; it's all text. <laughs> yeah. And the uh, this is just me doing another another push to get that more people playing that game. Uh, and it's funny because the vibe of that game I wouldn't say is obnoxious. I know you weren't saying that, but it is kind of the the vibe of the people talking to you in that game is sort of like you're going to be here for a very long time you know <laughs> this is your home now so uh we're going to explain this thing to you nice and slow you just take your time and you know maybe in 500 hours of play you'll finally understand what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah it's kind of it's very softly softly but <laughs> it's weird isn't it because it's uh a lot of the a lot of the japanese games um they spend very very inter- like interminable uh, uh tutorials on on simply movement um with that with the shirin 5 um there is a, a succession of very basic trace tutorials that tell you like one of like dedicated to holding down a button so that you uh so you go diagonally this is an important thing to do and but there is an entire fucking uh um <laughs> tutorial devoted to it and yet you feel completely bewildered all you know about <laughs> but what am i meant to be doing and and who is that character and why can't i go into that space and oh goodness you know there's sort of like this sort of discrepancy between uh, the mis- general mystery and how kind of uh, mundane the things that you're being told are. Yeah, it's completely bonkers. It also, not for nothing, it also contains an entire Minesweeper game and an entire, um, uh, what do you call the uh, the Japanese like box-pushing puzzle games? It's got one of those in there A soccer well. band game. Okay. It's got a whole soccer God. band game in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> they just stuck in there for, for good measure. <laughs> well, that's good. That's three. That's three games in one, and it justifies Absolutely. the purchase on uh, on on uh, <laughs> on Switch that I just made. Thank you. <laughs> um, you mentioned what? another roguelike there. You mentioned Jupiter Hell. Yeah, Jupiter Hell. So that's uh, um, it was it was called a Doom RPG. No, what was RL it? Doom, Doom RL. RL. That's right. Uh, which which changed its name uh, for obvious um, re, um, IP reasons um, and to Jupiter Hell. Um, and it is a roguelike interpretation of Doom. Um, turn-based, you know, it it has all of these, a lot of the archetypes, except for your shooting guns 
rather than uh, generally doing melee. Like melee is actually probably like there are ranged options for for all the games we've talked about so far, but melee is the the core of the games we've talked about so far. Um, but yeah, do uh, Jupiter Hell is um, is completely is is very much about um, shotguns and pistols and assault rifles um, in a 3D environment uh, uh, with kind of lighting effects and uh, um, lots of sort of jibs <laughs> um, <laughs> weapon feel. Who'd have thought they were, you would get weapon feel in a game uh, in a roguelike? But they did it. They really have done it. Um, really focused on sort of the sense of movement as you're going from square to square. Like if you're holding down the button, um, it. You, it wants you to feel good as you kind of skirt around a corner um, uh, while also being precise enough that you don't kind of overshoot things. And because every square is a move, uh, which means that the other enemies are, are getting a chance to go. Um, but what, what one of the other things that um, Jupiter Hell does that's very different is that it's a really long game. Uh, I played it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I hadn't picked it up for a while because it's sort of, I think it was in early access and I think it's come out of early access now. Anyway, it's, it's quite different to, to what I played a few, uh, maybe a couple of years ago. Um, a run, I, the, the get the, the first run I'm on, I'm still in. I've been, <laughs> I've been to all over a base. I've been down to the a planet. I've dug down beneath the surface of that planet. I've been to laboratories. I've, 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 upgraded so much stuff i've it feels like i'm playing a full game on in this one run um and it's quite fascinating for it um i don't know what it's going to feel like uh when i inevitably die because i don't really feel that i've done brilliantly although i do feel powerful now the 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 upgrades in this game um you get to to, a, a pretty powerful i get there are all these um you know once you once you get enough experience uh, there are these various skill-based um, uh, abilities that you can upgrade into and then upgrade from those points. One of the things that I got is that I, I can't die. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't die. Um, I, I can't remember the vagaries exactly of why I can't die because I, I, a run can end, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real safety net. And that's It's the what... trait, isn't it, that where if you, if you would die... Instead, your health goes to like 22 or something like that. So if you get hit again with that, then you will die. But the first hit won't kill you, I think is the trait. Oh, that's it. No, it's it's more powerful than that. I think, really? <laughs> uh, I can't remember. God, what is it? I'm really sorry. Yeah, I, 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 I did go back into it, but I was so scared of um, losing my place because uh, I wanted to remind myself of, of it. Uh, I was so scared of losing my place and, and killing myself because I'd forgotten what the keys do. That, um, that I came back out again, um, but um, but yeah, it it's um, it it in it, but it definitely also has kind of interesting sort of things happening. So there was a level that I went into, uh, which had this kind of demonic church, um, and went into it. And there's an amazing item at the other end of the church. But as soon as I took it, uh, demons started spawning in on these columns in this um, this church that I now had to, to go out past all of them. And there wasn't an awful lot of ammo. In this game, there's ammo and there's um, you have to reload your weapons as well. 
So it really does mix in a lot of um, first-person shooter archetypes into the roguelike archetype. And I think it's actually pretty successful at it. Have I replayed it? Yeah, I've played it. Um, I've played it quite a lot. Uh, I think it's a, a really lovely game. I think one of the ways, you know, talking about being shit at roguelikes, well, I think this is a, a very much a roguelike that wants you to have fun and wants you to kind of kick ass and yeah. wants you to, you know, get powerful. Um, and it kind of has various ways in which it points you in the right direction. Um, you know, I'm not one of those people whose brain sort of works in such a way where I can, you know, play Monster Train or Slay the Spire at a high level where I've got some sort of unbeatable synergy. You know, it's just not kind of who I am. Um, but I really like with Jupiter Hell that it kind of, it just kind of gives you enough pointers in those directions and also, also just ways to brute force your ways to being powerful by upgrading the same item lots of times yeah. or, you know, applying lots of, you know, effects to a certain thing. And, and I just really like that about it because, uh, you know, I play it on easy mode. I can get most of the way through a run before dying in the sort of last area. Um and have a lot of fun, you know, doing that before the power curve just kind of screws me over. But I just think it's very elegant in in that. And it has a, it's early game, you know, roguelike fanatics will tell you that, you know, boring early game is the sign of a poor roguelike. But I think Jupiter Hell's got a really, really good one because while you're working out kind of what you want your build to be and what you want to spec towards, I like the way it lets you store your upgrade points so that you don't have to make a decision straight away mm-hmm. on what you're kind of going to level up. You can wait until you found a gun or or found a you know an item that you want to build your your sort of spec around, and I, I really like that about it. I like that it's a friendly game that uses the things that you're familiar with from you know Doom uh to kind of yeah to kind of make a roguelike which has a sense of kinesis to it which is kind of unique really yeah i've I'm, i must admit i hadn't got and played it enough to get that feel of of what on earth direction this is going in but um yeah it does it does feel friendly and it wants you to feel powerful in a way that most of these games really don't Feeling powerful is not what, what these games are about, and it's quite interesting the way that it still ekes the the, the you know it, it still plays completely with the fundamentals of the genre despite that. Um, James, you you had one other game that um, that we we started talking a little bit about story stuff. Um, I think that you were talking about um, Case of Cud, which which I th- which in my hazy awareness has has kind of quite a strong storytelling aspect to it is that is that right yeah it's 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 kind of unusual because it has a fixed narrative main quest although features of that are procedurally generated but generally yes you have a kind of pretty specific path through the game as i understand that i've only maybe played the sort of first third of the game or something like that um but lots of things about it are randomized. It will randomize, uh, you know, it will procedurally generate, you know, a whole bunch of stuff around a fairly static structure. I mean, it's kind of, uh, I, every time I kind of load up Caves of Card, I'm kind of knocked out by what an amazing game it is. <laughs> you know, the the character generation, the sort of far future world that it's set in, um, the writing in it is amazing. The way it looks, the colors, the music, there's so much to recommend about it really and i need to do a full playthrough of it soon they've just added a whole bunch of like 
modes where there's very little combat or you can save your game constantly and you you know they've always been really good at kind of the fact that it is a very merciless and dangerous game uh in terms of its in-world sort of fiction they've always worked quite hard to mitigate that and now they really have like proper save states and proper checkpointing and things like that it's Mm. um one of the things that's great about it is you can kind of build your own kind of weird monster in the character creator with all sorts of mutations and and uh, uh, weird abilities and body shapes and and and, uh, and things like that, and that makes it a really fun game to kind of role play in. I think you know if you if you sit down with the character creator and go, I want to build like a big hairy Spider Man who can teleport and who like shoot goo out of his face when people hit him you can kind of build that you know and and take that off into the into the game to go and fight people with um yeah it's 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 uh it's an interesting one i think uh they're coming towards the end of early access now and i need to go back to it and and have another go because they've put so much into it and i've seen lots of interviews with the devs and stuff like that they've they've put like there's so much in that game um, and so much of a kind of exploration space that I think, yeah, it's kind of special. It's just um, I often find myself, you know, just slightly getting a bit tired of it, you know, in that kind of being shit at roguelikes thing. It's so hard to commit to something like that, um, which is why like things like Sheeran and Jupiter Hell, where they're kind of, they're giving you a boost. They're kind of patting you on the shoulder every now and again and, and telling you you're doing well. I kind of need a bit more of that in my roguelikes. I'm a, I'm a meek little boy and I need people to tell me I'm, I'm doing a good job. So so, so bringing it back to kind of, we've meant, we've been sort of talking about it all the way through. Uh, Brogue doesn't really pat you on the shoulder, but all three of us have played it a lot. What do you think it is about this particular, that particular game that's held our attention so consistently? I mean, a lot. I think a lot to do with it is the fact that it's free. It's easy to download. It's just a little app. You open it up. The levels take place on one little screen that's easy to resize and move around, and it doesn't have a complicated, you know, control structure. It's so it pats you on the shoulder by how friendly it is to play and how welcoming it is to play and, and how little it, you know, it, it presents a world that seems complicated and, and challenging, but also, you know, the levels literally twinkle at you. Um, and I think for me, that's a, that's a lot of, of, of what it's about is that it just, the way it presents itself is so clean and clear that it just makes it so easy to play to boot it up yeah i think i mean we've we've spoken about its accessibility and i mentioned before how easy it is to to choose to get anecdotes out of it based on how you play but yeah certainly that other part is i, I often play these games on a second screen while i'm watching something and a lot of games are really bad as second screen games because you have to listen to them <laughs> traditional roguelikes you don't have to listen to them. Most of them are silent; they're just text. And and Rogue and uh, Broke, sorry, being able to play it with a mouse means it's it's great for being really slouched down in a chair while watching repeats of last week tonight on the other monitor <laughs> late at night. You know, um, it's it's a great game to unwind to, despite how often it kills you. <laughs> One of the appeals, I think, of roguelikes is is for me at least, is the challenge of them, right? Is the idea that these games, it almost sort of speaks to the 
the part of me that likes really like difficult jazz music or something like that, or really <laughs> insane heavy metal, where it's like you want to go to the extreme of something. You want to find some something that's like really punishing and difficult, but rewarding once you understand it properly. And, you know, roguelikes are these games made by these complete weirdos who don't really, you know, who kind of exist in a completely different system to the rest of, you know, the way video games work. And so it's a real, it's almost like the same feeling where like, right, I'm going to read all of Ulysses or uh, Moby Dick and that kind of vibe. And I think because Brogue is such a like loving homage, homage to Rogue and to those games whilst also being the most friendly. I think there might be an element of that that kind of brings me back to it because I want to play the hardest game in the world, right? I want to get good at the hardest game in the world. I'm never going to do it because I can't be asked and I'm an idiot, but there's something about it that makes it easier to come back to, to sort of half-heartedly attempt that perhaps. (laughs) Do we want to talk about watching other people play roguelikes? Yeah, there there are some, there are some good, uh, uh, like, other ways to it there's some good books about roguelikes i recommend uh, john harris's uh at playbook he was the kind of guy um sort of writing about roguelikes on the internet in the late 90s and stuff when no one else was so a lot of that's archived and, and you can also get his book which is really good he right. wrote a great book on Sheeran. uh no rodney lives rodney lives on uh, twitter um and just a generally great guy. There's things like the roguelike celebration which happens every year which is always really interesting and they have great talks there um you know really interesting people coming on that's all on all on youtube you can you can watch those um there's a particular streamer i really love called tone hack at tone hack who for ages and ages there weren't any let's plays of nethack on youtube that were any good or worth watching and then he did did them and now he kind of uh, has been kind of doing that for a while now and he's just really good fun i think he's probably a chill canadian like all good streamers he's just a chill canadian <laughs> dude um <laughs> Uh, and I really like him. Uh, there's also Blind IRL who does a lot of Dwarf Fortress stuff, but is really is really good at that too. Um, and like, there's also like people do speed running of NetHack now, which is insane to watch, which is completely ridiculous. Um, particularly to someone like me who can't get anywhere in the game, but they there's been a few of those recently. There's also people who do like insane tool assisted speed runs of of NetHack where they try and. Um, uh, sort of uh, break open the game using you know those sort of tools, and another one where like um, like a project where they're trying to create an AI that can win any game of NetHack because NetHack has so many variables. Oh, it's wow. considered to be a kind of uh, holy grail to yeah. um, you know get uh, AIs to try and solve. So there's a whole bunch of stuff like out there that's just around one game that uh, kind of other ways of in- engaging with it as well. <laughs> And, and like to be honest, that's a big part of it for me. It's just like listening to the roguelike radio podcast, watching the roguelike celebration, and reading weird articles that I don't even vaguely understand about the technicalities of it. Just because it's kind of an interesting and, and weird world, and a lot of the people are real weirdos too, which I'm always, always <laughs> up for. <laughs> I think we've discovered over the, the the last two hours that you are super deep into roguelikes and actually quite good at some roguelikes. I think... Yeah, I am literally just hitting monkeys and giggling to myself when they steal my magic ring like (laughs) that's that's the level i'm appreciating them on i I think you might be a rogue jock (laughs) (laughs) i've never completed one (laughs) (laughs) i just got very very far 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I got to the moment before you can ascend in NetHack, and I thought, no, you know what? I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> just going to stand here. <laughs> but it is, I mean, yeah, it's just such a rewarding thing. And I think, yeah, being able to see other people do well, or at least start to understand their, their thinking, you know, because they're, I think, actually, you know, going back to, uh, uh, you know, brass tacks, like why, why on earth am I interested in, in, in the genre in general? Um, I think that one of the things that attracted me in the first place was the idea that it is turn-based, um, that, that it feels in some ways attainable. Um, success seems attainable because it's not based on eye-hand coordination or anything like that. If you could just make the right decisions, you can do it and you can take all the time in the world about making those decisions. I mean, this is an absolute fallacy, obviously, as I, you know, as we've been discussing. But um, I think that just the 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 the, the hint of that 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 uh, that idea is it was enough to kind of bring me in, um, and then to be able to watch people and to understand their their uh, decision making, at least the processes they go through feels like a rewarding thing. I don't think you could ever watch a, an esports player and particularly get better at that game because, because, because of all of the, uh, other things that, that they're able to do that, that, that I know that I will never be able to, to do, but with these games, there's always a promise that maybe, maybe, this run, you could get a bit further, and maybe this time the decisions I made make will will be better. And so we beat on boats against the current, born ceaselessly back into the past. So, <laughs> so <laughs> you, you're sounding a lot like the last page of Great Gatsby. There. <laughs> and that's all we have tonight in this lockdown, lockdown, lock in about. Uh, roguelikes um you can hang out with us and our community on our discord channel you can find the link at our website crateandcrowbar.com you can follow us on twitter at crate and crowbar uh, you can listen to the show on youtube where you'll also find our various spin-off projects that's at youtube slash crate and crowbar the crate and crowbar is kindly funded by our patreon backers if you'd like to know more about supporting our podcast and its spin-offs visit patreon.com slash Creighton Crowbar. And it only remains for me to say I have been Alex Wiltshire. I've been Jamie Britton. And I have been Graham Smith. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody.